Hi there, and welcome to episode 9 of Does Not Compute. Sean and I wanted to take a minute to thank everyone for the incredible support we've had so far. It really means a lot to us that people are listening to and getting useful information out of the show. We love hearing from all of you in the spec slack, as well as on Twitter. You've also done a fantastic job of supporting us with iTunes ratings and reviews, which we're truly grateful for. It's really cool to be involved in such an awesome community where people are excited about coming together to help each other learn and grow. We also want to say thanks to all the awesome folks at Spec. We definitely wouldn't be at the point we are now if not for your support, and we're both really stoked on growing alongside the network. If you're a fan of Does Not Compute, but don't listen to the other shows on Spec, I'd highly recommend having a listen. There's at least a show or two for everybody. Developer T provides more great dev insight. Design Details talks to a bunch of people doing great stuff all throughout the tech industry. Immutable answers your questions about design and development, rapid fire style. And Vicarious pretty much covers the rest of geek culture, stuff like video games, movies, and comics. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. You're just about on the verge of finishing up some pretty long-running projects. How does that feel? Feels good, man. Both of these projects I know have been running for quite a while now, a few months at least. And I know that when projects kind of drag on and feel like they're never going to end, that can be kind of demoralizing. How do you how do you deal with that? The best way for me to deal with things like that is to look at the project through the client's eyes. You know, obviously people have different ways of communicating and and expressing um, their feelings, but I try my hardest to look at the project that I'm working on and the project that's running long as if I were the person that this was being built for. And I find that that helps me empathize empathize with them. Now, that doesn't mean that you should let people kind of just run over you, right? Uh, But for me, that helps me see them less as just a client or less as somebody that's annoying me and more of a person who um, has wants for this thing, if that makes sense. I, th- I think that's totally sensible. Like w- as designers and developers, we always kind of look at these things as if they're, there are babies, right? You know, it's the thing that we've spent all this time making. We've put a lot of ourselves into it, but then when you really step back, it- it's not just us, as, a- at least in client work. It's also the client. Like this is something that they have thought about for a long time and they probably had the idea for. And they are spending the money on, so that kind of that kind of really does help to reframe things. I think. Yeah, it's. I, I try to remember too that you know I'm part of a team, and part of that team is also the client, right? Because obviously we wouldn't we wouldn't take the gig in, unless we thought we could do a good job, or unless we kind of believed in the idea. I, I, re- I honestly, that's the biggest thing that helps me with that is just kind just seeing trying to look th- look at things through their eyes. Um, I think that was a huge lesson that I learned while being in a band was writing a bunch of songs and then going to some other band members and saying, Hey, what do you think about this? And then there's always one person, you know, that says, what if we did this or what if we changed that part? And it would always be the part that I really liked. And I thought that I didn't want to change. (laughs) So many people look at the, the client slash designer developer relationship as an adversarial one, but it definitely shouldn't be that you're on the same team. They're paying you to make this thing for them and they want it to be awesome and you want it to be awesome. Like nobody wants this to be bad. There is no one who is actively trying to make things worse, even if it might seem like that at times with the way that clients act. Their goal is to make the coolest thing they can make because 
it's their baby just as much as yours, if not more. Sure. I think that framing it as an adversary relationship is a really good way to describe that. Uh, I know that I've definitely felt that way. And I know that I know that that's wrong for me to think like that, but it's, I feel like it's really easy to kind of get into that mindset, you know, especially when you're able to vent to other developers or designers and say, wow, well, you know, this person wants this, isn't that crazy? Or that's a terrible idea. And it's really easy to kind of just, just to build up that, um, just build up negative feelings toward that person. Definitely. And I think it's also important to remember that part of the role in client services, especially of being a designer, being a developer is being able to explain why certain things may or may not make sense. You know, this person might think that adding 30 social buttons is going to help people share that. But part of your job, if you're building a website, is to say, okay, well, let's look at some usability data and information on how people share things to figure out if this actually does make sense. And I've done this in the past where I've said, okay, look, there are studies that say... For example, hamburger menus are not the best way to go, and you should probably focus on restructuring the architecture of the site, the the, uh, the layout, what the different pages are. But there have also been cases where I'll, I'll think, oh, the client is totally wrong in this, and I need to find some articles to show them how incorrect they are and how we should actually do it. But then I look it up, and maybe their idea wasn't even so bad. So remembering that things do change and that our preconceived notions of how things work aren't always going to stay correct is I think super important. Yeah, it's really, really important. Uh, A really good example of this actually happened this week. I was working on a project and this project happens to be an e-commerce store and there are a large number of images on the store product page, you know, obviously just showing off the product. And so since there are so many images, I opted to lazy load most of them. So as you scroll down, you might see a split second of a loading icon or something, and then the image kind of fades in. And the client came to me and asked, you know, I, I don't see this happening on a lot of other sites. Why Why is there this loading phase for these images? And my response was, well, a lot of other sites aren't really responsible in the way that they give you these images. So they actually just force you to load all the images, whether you view them or not. So in our case, there are a few different image sliders and, you know, there might be three displayed on the page and there might be 10 off screen. That doesn't mean that you need to send them all 13, you know, only send the user what they're going to view. And he didn't really understand that at first, but then I explained it. I framed it like this. I said, well, say you go to this site on your your phone, you know, and you don't have unlimited data. You go to this page and you load all 13 of those pictures and then all 13 of those pictures are fairly large sized. That is that basically equates to money that you're using up. You're using this person's money because you want to send them all these images because you don't want to see a loading a loading phase. And he he really understood that. He was like, "Oh, that makes that makes a lot of sense." I, I saw these Basecamp messages, and you did that in a in a friendly way that just explained it gently to someone who didn't and really shouldn't have the technical knowledge. It's your job to understand why that is important or whatever usability thing is important. It is not the client's job. The client's job is really to come up with a cool idea and then pay someone who knows what they're doing to make the cool idea. So I I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Yeah. And I guess that brings me to another, another good point uh, for the question of staying motivated and dealing with projects that are running long is to 
not not send through messages off of reactions. So never reply to something right away. Always take a minute to think about something. And if you get a message and you're feeling pretty heated about it, go outside, take a break, you know, go ride a bike or something like that and come back later and try to try to answer with a, a clear and level head. Yeah. And again, I think especially in client services, you'll get a lot of messages at, you know, two in the morning or whatever, especially if clients are in different time zones or on a Sunday afternoon when you're out hanging out with some friends or getting lunch with your crush, you know, whatever that is. And it can be so easy to reply in the moment with something that it's like, it's Sunday, leave me alone. But you know what actually is way better for you and for them is to just sit back and say, okay, you know what? There's this thing. I don't want to deal with it right now. If I respond to it right now, I'm going to be angry. And in the moment, it can feel good to respond in that way. I've certainly done that before, and I think most people have at some point. But if you just put put that off until, you know, until Monday morning, because it is the weekend and you really shouldn't be working, you do need that time off to recharge and let yourself be. But if you're using something, let's say Mailbox, for example, that's a, that's a great way to delay stuff until you can be mentally prepared to deal with it. So in a previous episode, we mentioned SSL and a couple of tools that we use to make setting up SSL easier. Um, but Ryan DLF on Twitter asked us recently to kind of expound on that. And he wants to know what is really required and what are the steps to go about setting up an SSL cert. I think one of the best resources in this category are the Heroku SSL guides for setting up all this kind of stuff. They've got uh, some great tutorials available on their site, and we'll put those in show notes that kind of explain how to generate the certificate request, how to actually set that, uh, send that to someone who can issue a certificate, and then once you receive the certificate, how to set it up on Heroku. So obviously, if you're on Heroku, that's great. But if you're not, that last step changes a little bit. So we'll get some guides for other popular solutions like Nginx and Apache up in the show notes. But basically, the the first two parts of that are always going to be the same. How to generate the certificate request and then how to actually submit that request to someone who can give you a certificate. So the providers will normally give you a few different files and you're supposed to put them together in a certain order. And that order seems to be always different. So we mentioned a tool called certificatechain.io that helps you out with this. So I believe you just add your certificate to it and then it gives you the file that you need at the end, right, Paul? Yep, that's absolutely what it does. I've used this, I think, a couple times now since we last mentioned it. And it's been fantastic. It makes it so much easier. And what a couple people have asked me about is if this is a security concern, because of course you're uploading certificate files to a random website and that seems kind of dangerous, but all you have to upload to certificate chain are the actual public certificates, the ones that get sent to everyone who visits your website basically. So this is completely safe. It, It doesn't propose any sort of security risk. And it's something that makes, makes the whole process just so much more seamless. Right. I, I think the first uh, SSL I set up, I had to buy it twice because I screwed the first one up. Yeah, I've had actually, this has happened several times when I've received SSL certs from various people, is getting the uh, the common name wrong. So people don't really know what a common name is. Make sure that you enter that as your domain when you're generating the uh, CSR. 
certificate signing request. And depending on the type of certificate that you're generating, you actually need to be careful even about the www.mydomain.com or the just mydomain.com variants of that because that can actually affect whether or not you have a valid certificate. And that depends on a lot of stuff based on how your DNS is set up and the type of certificate you're buying, whether it's a wild card or not and all that kind of stuff. So it's a little bit much to get into talking about, but just be aware of those issues and that SSL is a reasonably complex thing. So there are a lot of variables and really make sure that you're being careful when you generate your CSR. So there was actually this awesome article on CSS tricks just a few weeks ago, and it talks about a bunch of different ways to handle image replacement. So this is, let's say you have a logo on your website and you want the logo to be visible with its fancy curving text and whatever that was built out in Photoshop, but you also want it to be accessible to screen readers and that sort of thing. So there's all sorts of different ways to handle this. And they actually outline, gosh, I think like 15 maybe different ways of doing these tricks. And to me, what was really interesting about this is just how complex this can get. And I think a lot of people actually treat CSS as if it is a sort of beginner's language. It's, oh, you're just an HTML CSS developer. But that's not how I look at it at all. I mean, you can make great looking things very simply using CSS in modern browsers. But if you want any sort of compatibility or accessibility, there are so many things that you have to consider. There really is, I think anyway, just as much to consider in CSS as there is in just about any other language. So I, I might catch some flack for this, but personally, I have a harder time dealing with front end in CSS than I do writing back end code. And for me, the reasoning is with Rails, Rails relies heavily on conventions, right? So when you're working with Rails, there's a certain way you do things. There's lots of structure. It's it's very structured. And so when you're building your application, you follow those conventions and that's that's what you do, right? And obviously there you you know you can you can sway a little bit there, but largely that's what you do. Whereas with front end in CSS, the pace of things moves so fast and I feel like there's so much less structure there. There are a lot of small pockets of people that push these ideas, right? These these conventions that they think work really well. And so for example, if I'm working on a project and a, the project might be a couple months old, the code that I'm writing when I first started the project could be wildly different from the code that I want to write because of blog articles coming out or podcasts coming out and in me just kind of noticing things and thinking like, wow, I really I really agree with how, you know, how this person goes about building out their CSS and their JavaScript. And that's to me what makes it so difficult is is it's constantly moving, right? There's not as much structure and yeah, and now it's just really difficult for me. I 100% agree with this. I think that backend development definitely has complexities and it can be very difficult. But front end stuff there's just First of all, there's so much changing all the time. You have different versions of browsers coming out every day. You have no guarantee of what platform your code is going to be running on. And that just makes things very difficult. You could have one project where you're, for example, writing a PhoneGap app and you can target, you know, new WebKit conventions. You can rely on 
uh, WebGL or even just Canvas. You can just expect those things to be there. You can say, okay, this CSS thing is going to be available. For example, border radius was a really big one for several years. Not so much anymore. It's pretty widely available. But I think that was very important for quite a while. That was that was a thing where you needed to know if that was going to be available or not. So you could do a fallback. These days you can work on one project where you're targeting modern browsers only with this great level of support and then move on to another one where you have to support all the way back to IE7. It's such a such a wide range of things. And I think what's really cool about this article is that it talks about all the different ways that you can do things to support various browsers, but it also discusses which things have made sense over different periods of time and why. And I think that's really cool to kind of look at how web development and design have evolved over that period of time and see just how far we've come. And also, if you're working on a legacy project, figure out what you have available. I really enjoyed reading the article because it it reminded me of times when I was learning each technique or times when I found a new technique and I threw away an old one. It, it was kind of like a, a trip down memory lane. Sure. I remember when I first learned the negative uh, 9,999 pixels trick for hiding text. And then it was like, oh, just set overflow hidden and use text indent 100%. And it's like, that sounds like such a goofy thing if you don't understand CSS. But that was kind of revolutionary, and it actually improved performance a little bit, and it was just a cool thing to learn about. So I I think that CSS is very a lot more nuanced than people give it credit for, and I think it's really cool to see things that explain that in in a nice way. All right, so the last thing we wanted to talk about is an article from Arrow Twist, and it's called The Cost of Frameworks. This is focusing on kind of whether or not you should use a framework, especially in mobile development, and kind of what the advantages and disadvantages are of using a framework, uh, both from the perspective of a developer as well as the perspective of a user. I think it makes a lot of really interesting points, and I think it also serves kind of as a, a good counterpoint to what we've been talking about the last several weeks with how awesome Vue is, because Vue is great, but it's important to think about that from the user side as well as the developer side. So the first thing this article does is talk about the benefits of frameworks for developers versus what users actually need and want out of an application. And this is something that I think tends to get overlooked. We, when talking about development, it's so easy to say, okay, well, this thing makes life easier for me as a developer. It makes me faster. It makes it quick for me to build, you know, an MVP kind of application. And it helps me get around different inconsistencies in the platforms that I might be targeting, whether that's a web app that can be run on iOS or Android, or even just different versions of mobile Safari. There are so many different things that can come into play when you're targeting browsers and kind of trying to deal with all those inconsistencies. And frameworks do tend to make that a lot easier. Most certainly. And another thing that frameworks, I don't think he mentioned this in the article, but another thing that frameworks add to the table is a consistent way of doing things. So if you're working with a team, again, we mentioned how Rails is, you know, convention over configuration. A lot of these frameworks help introduce some more structure into your front end work, which can be invaluable for teams. That's absolutely true. Uh, Having having that kind of consistency, having everybody be on the same page and having these docs that someone outside of your team has written that everyone on your team treats as the source of truth, as it were. That can be extremely, extremely helpful if you're working on something 
with a lot of other developers for a long period of time. That saves a lot of time and headache. You know, it's one less thing to have to document for yourselves. Like, this is how we work. Uh, if you can, if you can go to those docs and they, you know, they already exist, that, that saves you a step and makes you a little bit quicker. And if everybody's already agreed that, okay, we're going to follow the conventions for XYZ framework, then you're all on the same page. And that's one less thing that you have to spend time figuring out. So then from the other side of things, there's what users actually want from an application. Users are primarily concerned with applications loading fast and running quickly once they're loaded. That's a major thing. And another important point is that a lot of users don't have unlimited data, especially at least in the United States, mobile users are typically capped at a gigabyte or so per month. And that's not very much data, even if you're doing a little bit of web browsing. Pages are pretty heavy these days. So the lighter you can keep your site, the less of an impact you're having on that person's bill. Right. And I know we've all seen the articles coming out recently where people highlight certain sites like The Verge and how much, you know, how much JavaScript they're sending over the wire to the users. And so I think more and more people are becoming aware uh, of this sort of thing. And, you know, we all saw how popular the ad blockers were uh, when they when they hit the iOS app store. So I think, you know, like I said, I think people are becoming more aware of this. And the more that we can do to make sure that our sites are lightweight and execute quickly, you know, I think it, it goes farther in keeping our users trust. I think an important takeaway from this is that it's not an all or nothing. It's not you should always use a framework or you should never use a framework. It, it's really about evaluating all the different pros and cons of what that means for your app. If you're a single person working on something, some of the benefits of a framework are going to be lost because you don't get that benefit of having widely accessible docs that everybody can look at. Because if it's just you, then you will write your own code and you'll be pretty familiar with it. So that's not nearly as big of a deal. But if you're on a big team, that can be something that's very important. And a big part of the reason why these frameworks were developed in the first place, because there are big teams working on big stuff. And these sorts of time-saving things become very important when you're at that scale. But it's also important to think about what your users need. This article has some benchmarks of various user libraries. And there are some things like, let's see, React 0.13.3 without Transform JSX takes almost a second and a half to finish bootstrapping on an iPhone 5S versus the same code in vanilla JavaScript taking only 33 milliseconds. And it's a difference of just about 300 kilobytes in code size too. It's pretty absurd how much of a difference something like that can make. Now, granted, this is just to do MVC. So that's obviously not as complex as most real applications, but I think the, the point stands right? There is a pretty drastic difference. We're talking a couple orders of magnitude here in how quickly a framework might perform versus raw JavaScript. Uh, like people build apps and then like the mobile portions of these apps, they just implement everything in React and then they're like, this is good. Yeah. All that being said, the same test, but with React 0.13.3 transformed JSX via Babel and a production build of React ran in about 118 milliseconds. So you can definitely get a lot closer, but it's about considering how much time your app takes to load, how much data your app is sending over the wire, and what trade-offs are acceptable to you. Kind of like with everything in development, it's always, this is going to be better or worse. 
PHP is very widely available on a lot of servers and it is pretty fast, relatively speaking, but it's not always the best choice. Ruby is very pleasant for developers to write and it has pretty good support and a great community, but it's not very fast. So there, there are all, there are always, so there are always pluses and minuses to all of these things. And it's important to keep them in mind especially when you're working on constrained devices like mobile. Right. And I think the point that you made about, you know, making informed decisions about what your users need is really important. So it's kind of like being in a relationship. It's a give and a take, right? Obviously, as developers, we think that developer ergonomics are really important. And obviously, users, as a user, they think that I want this thing to load quickly and not use up all my data is really important. So it's a matter of finding a balance. You know, what uh, what kind of experience can you give to your user? That is a good experience, but also doesn't sacrifice too much on the dev side. Hey there, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Does Not Compute. We would love to hear from you on the Spec Slack. If you're not already a member, you can sign up at spec.fm slash slack. They have everything you need to get started right there, and we will be very, very happy to talk to you. Also, we are on Twitter at DNCCast, so we're happy to talk on there as well. If you've been enjoying Does Not Compute, please rate us on iTunes. It really means a lot.